How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS-dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Welcome to EMS World Podcasts. I am Hillary Gates, Senior Editorial and Program Director from EMS World, and today I'll be reading from our May 1st, 2020 issue, an article titled Coronavirus Lessons from Ground Zero, written by freelancer James Careless. When EMS personnel from the Kirkland, Washington Fire Department responded to Life Care Center Nursing Home in late February 2020, they weren't expecting anything out of the ordinary. Based on the calls for patients suffering from fever and respiratory problems, we believe the highest likelihood was a flu outbreak, says Kirkland Fire Department EMS Captain Joel Bodenman. Although the medical situation was taken seriously, there didn't appear to be a crisis unfolding. That was then. As we know now, Life Care Center turned out to be the epicenter of Washington State's COVID-19 outbreak. Over the next month, more than 30 of the nursing home's residents died of the disease. And because they didn't know COVID-19 was at this facility, a number of Kirkland first responders were exposed to the virus and left out of commission. We ended up with approximately a third of our workforce in quarantine or isolation, says Bodenman. This seriously affected our remaining firefighters and EMTs, leading to many Kirkland employees working extraordinary hours since the outbreak began. Since the Life Care Center outbreak, the Kirkland Fire Department has learned some important lessons about dealing with COVID-19. Take it seriously. Yes, COVID-19 is not Ebola or the plague, but it is still extremely serious, particularly because the U.S. healthcare system is not geared to deal with the pandemic. Wear the right PPE. According to the CDC, the right PPE for dealing with COVID-19 patients consists of gloves, goggles, face shield, or glasses approved for splash protection, full-length gown, and N95 or higher level respirator. Keep your distance when possible. It is obviously not reasonable to expect EMTs to keep their distance when moving COVID-19 patients, but they can reduce their risks by minimizing contact when possible. King County EMS began sending single responders in full PPE into homes to screen patients not identified by dispatch. Eastside Fire and Rescue looked at handing tablets to family members to take into patients. Transport patients safely. When an ambulance transports a COVID-19 patient to a hospital, be sure to alert the receiving site ASAP about their status. There is always a risk of infection. To reduce the danger, put a mask on the patient and ensure the pass-through between the driver and patient compartment is closed if possible. Family members and friends should not ride along. If they must, they should wear face masks. Turn on the ventilation fan. Leave all doors open upon exiting the vehicle to ensure it has a clean air exchange as you bring the patient into the hospital. When possible, use vehicles that have isolated driver and patient compartments that can provide separate ventilation to each area, says Vince Robbins, past president of the National EMS Management Association. During transport, vehicle ventilation in both compartments should be on non-recirculated mode to maximize air changes that reduce potentially infectious particles in the vehicle. If the vehicle has a rear exhaust fan, Use it to draw air away from the cab, toward the patient care area, and out the back end of the vehicle. 
If the ambulance doesn't have an isolated driving compartment and uses unfiltered air during transport, open the outside air vents in the driver area and turn on the rear exhaust ventilation fans to the highest setting, Robbins says. This will create a negative pressure gradient in the patient area. Finally, disinfect after transport. Once the COVID-19 patient has been delivered, disinfect the ambulance as soon as possible. Wear full PPE during the process and thoroughly clean and disinfect all areas and all surfaces that may have come in contact with the patient or been contaminated during care using EPA-registered hospital-grade disinfectants. Leave the vehicle's doors open to ensure safe ventilation of fumes. Stay tuned for an interview with Captain Joel Bodenman on the after-effects of their experience with the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, I am joined by Captain Joel Bodenman of the Kirkland Fire Department. Welcome, Joel. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Hillary. Thanks for having me. I am the EMS captain for the Kirkland Fire Department, and I am also the health officer during the COVID uh, pandemic in the region here and involved in uh, all of our operations that are anything COVID-19 specific. Joel, we published an article in the May 1st issue of EMS World Magazine about Kirkland Fire Department and specifically Life Care Nursing Home being sort of ground zero for the COVID-19 pandemic. Probably not something that anyone wants to be, but that's what happened with you guys. And so now that some time has passed since the peak uh, for you in that area, how have things changed, if at all, for Kirkland Fire Department? So since the beginning, uh, obviously we were kind of, as you said, we were the first and we were having to react more than we would have liked to in a lot of these situations. And now since it's been almost two months, um, we've been trying to normalize or, or get used to the new normal on what we're doing operationally and regionally for handling COVID-19. Some of the things that we're doing um, are an expansion of what we had to do at the beginning. For example, um, ensuring that our personnel are safe with PPE. Uh, the, the wearing your mask, eyeglasses, gloves, and gown is something, um, obviously they're hard to get nowadays on the market, but uh, they're something that people are well-versed in using. But taking that a step farther and helping our responders with things like decon, we are trying to streamline the way we decon our vehicles and help. Uh, we actually started a regional decon station at our closest hospital and we're trialing that to see if that works, just to give people a little more tools than they normally have to decon their vehicles after dropping off patients at the hospital. At our fire stations, we have a work area where they essentially get out of their vehicles in the apparatus bay. They have a boot decon station, and then they aren't allowed to wear their boots or their PPE that they wore on that call into the fire station. We actually provide them with jumpsuits, so it makes it easy. The flow path is is straightforward and it keeps two different zones. So the responders are able to be in the office or dormitory areas and still be clean. We also do symptom monitoring. We work in conjunction with this with King County EMS and uh, also the Seattle Fire Department. All of us are now having our firefighters monitor their symptoms morning and evening to ensure that they're safe and healthy at work. So we've expanded a lot and the safety aspect of it. And then as far as normalizing how we are doing things operationally, we have started a lot of items in regards to training on helping firefighters be more successful in this environment. 
Some of that is has to do with how we run a cardiac arrest call. Traditionally, for a cardiac arrest call, would uh, just have our responders go into that environment and do what they do best. And we still provide that same level of care. We just do it in a more calculated and layered way. Uh, for example, our battalion chiefs and chaplains, and sometimes the medical services officer won't be standing directly in the area of the patient because they're not providing hands-on patient care. So we're trying to layer it so the people that truly are getting exposed or close to this uh, patient that is possibly COVID positive is um, necessary. Another example that King County EMS has adopted and also Seattle Fire, uh, we King County calls it a scout model and Seattle calls it a recon model, but any call that any agency in this county goes on right now is um, started with a responder going in to make contact with a higher level of PPE on that we would normally have. They have a mask, glasses, gloves, and a gown on. They go make contact with the patient and do some quick screening, ask some of the trigger questions, make sure they're not febrile, and make a determination if the subsequent responders behind them on their crew and possibly others responding to the scene need to actually be wearing PPE. This has to do with obviously that PPE is hard to get nowadays and we don't want to use it unnecessarily. So it's trying to streamline those processes. I just uh, heard on the latest Eagles webinar, the gathering of Eagles, the medical directors who are meeting, uh, that Dr. Mike Sayer from the Seattle Fire Department said that they are swabbing the patients who are pronounced on the scene. Is Kirkland Fire Department doing that as well? The entire King County is starting to do that. I do have to say this really quick. Dr. Sayer and Dr. Ray are really an advantage we have right now in King County EMS in the sense that we we have two medical directors, and that's pretty extraordinary. They work together, uh, and they work very hard, and, and they, they do a really good job. But having that ability to have that oversight and really have two people uh, manage it has really helped a region this populated work through this. So to your question uh, for post-mortem swabbing, yes, paramedics in the region are doing that now, and uh, they're just finalizing the flow paths and processes for doing post-mortem swabbing. I think the data that comes out of that is going to be interesting to everyone in the United States. So kudos to your organizations for getting that together. Yes, it's, it's really it's really interesting, and I, it will be hopefully it will be good data that benefits everybody. Joel, what downstream effects have you noticed now that you're um, a few weeks, uh, months really, um, off of your first or second cases? What effects on your providers, staffing, the shop as a whole? Um, are you seeing and and you know you can talk about mental and physical health here um, and operations and and that kind of thing. So when this first all started, as as expected, um, everybody was very um, very worked up and and in a good way, and we were trying to lean forward and actively be engaged and and work towards a positive solution for this uh, this challenge that was before us. And I think. As we've continued to get downstream, uh, we're still trying to do that. We're still trying to lean forward, and we are. It's just we need to set systems in place. We need to get ready for what is now the new normal in our environment. It doesn't seem or appear like there's any really quick end to this pandemic, and it's going to take a while to get to some 
resolution for some of the challenges we have. So in regards to our providers, I think they are doing a great job adapting. They are getting used to this new process, this new hypervigilance, these new safety things that we have in place for them. Um, As far as staffing, uh, it's interesting with with the nation being locked down right now, I don't think uh, most fire departments are needing in some, in some areas, rather, at least in, in our region, are needing extra staffing because our normal calls, like car accidents and uh, bike accidents, things that, that would be congruent with an open society, aren't really happening as often. Now, we have a lot higher flu-type illness calls, which really would relate to COVID-19. But as far as staffing, I think we are we're still leaning forward. We're still trying to make plans. We overstaffed the first two weeks. We added an aid car to our system uh, specifically for life care. And we don't do that anymore, but I think we're ready to, if we need to, we're just trying to see what's going to happen as the government starts to transition back to an open state and the other calls that we traditionally have gone and presumably come back and how we'll have to adjust. Uh, As far as the community, I think it's been a lot about education, um, working in conjunction with our partners, with King County EMS, with public health, with our agencies and regional PIOs, and making sure we uh, communicate with people. Uh, a lot of this has been really uh, the dispatch centers and how they've done a great job in helping us screen, helping uh, the community, especially when they're worried about possibly being affected by COVID-19, doing pre-screening on those calls to activate the EMS system to make sure that they're sending us out to the most appropriate calls as necessary. And as far as the data for King County EMS, and we track all of this, the referrals to uh, nurse lines, for example, have gone up uh, and they've gone up appropriately because we are trying to make sure we're going to see the sick patients in the community and um, not necessarily just everybody that might be worried that they they have this virus. Uh, then I would say the mental health aspect. We've been trying to engage our peer support teams. Um, obviously, this is this is a stressful event for everybody, and everybody is being affected by it differently. This is something that is going to uh, be an example of how we manage our peer support teams. And looking back, um, we're going to learn some some things from how we did this because I, I know we can always do things better. And I think this is one of those genres where uh, getting people put in touch with that that aspect of internal customer service would be better. And I, I think we probably, uh, to be fair, could have done that better as well, looking back at how we did this. Uh, physical health, I would say the the Kirkland Fire Department in our region, uh, we are trying to support uh, you know the stay-at-home orders that the government is asking us to do. In addition to self-monitoring, um, we also have um, videos, and we can, we can certainly give a hyperlink to this video um, to to EMS world so they can share it with people. It's all on an outward facing website now. And we, we help them in processes like how to live life in the fire station. And there's some paradigm shifts that we normally do that we aren't doing anymore. For example, we don't want our responders to eat um, really at the same time if possible. And if they do, we want them to have good social distancing. We don't want them to share leftovers. Uh, we want them to be more hypervigilant about declining their areas. Uh, we don't want them to stand in a circle after a structure fire and talk really close. We want them to maintain separation there. So 
as far as the health of our organization, we are trying to take more steps to ensure that we can stay healthy and do our job and go help our community. As far as leadership, uh, leadership's uh, always something that we're trying to get better at and learn as we go. And I think one thing that we could have done better, I think we could have paid more attention at the beginning to the emotional state, kind of going back to the mental health of our firefighters. I think it's it's easy to get into the problem solving mode. And sometimes when you're in that mode, it means you're focusing on the problem and not the people. And I think we were trying to focus on their safety and we were trying to put systems in place that was the best for them. But I think having face-to-face interactions with them and listening to them is really important. I think we could have done a better job at that. Um, Operationally, we've already talked about some of that, but we are trying to create systems that reduces our PPE burn rate, that keeps our responders as safe as possible. And it's really changing how we run some of our normal, our bread and butter calls. You've seen that nursing homes and the illnesses in the nursing homes uh, continue to make news throughout the country and are often places where there are hotspots for the virus and multiple people sick. What are some things you've learned uh, about your experience with life care that EMS can do to help mitigate or, or assist our partners in these nursing homes? So with nursing homes, I would say the first thing to start with is make sure right now before they become a, a challenge is you reach out and have those relationships with them and you work with them on day-to-day stuff. That's something that Kirkland and King County EMS has historically done. And I think that helped us in this situation in regards to being able to have point of contacts. We had already worked with them on situations in the past, like flu outbreaks, things like that. So establishing those communication pathways and relationships early will pay dividends in situations like this. Then in regards to helping them through these processes, I think it's good to have um, systems in place on how you want them to perform and have expectations on what to use or how to use the 911 system. Uh, An example of that is, I I imagine this is something that is uh, national, it's not just regional for us, is sometimes the care workers at nursing homes or care facilities don't exactly differentiate the difference between asking for an inter-facility transport and calling 911. So having those pathways where you can communicate with them and then help them make the right decision will help keep your units in service or make the appropriate unit respond to that. Additionally, what we've done from a regional aspect is for King County EMS and the Seattle Fire Department, we traditionally use what is called the DMCC at Harborview. That's our highest level trauma center in downtown Seattle. And if we have a a MCI, for an example, we will call them and they will manage getting all the patients from that scene distributed throughout the region and even the state to the most appropriate hospitals so we don't overload our system. And one thing that we learned early with Life Care Center of Kirkland and, and some of these other care facilities was that system didn't perfectly capture what was going on here in the sense of it was more of a trickle feed MCI and you had different players calling different hospitals and making arrangements for patients being delivered. For example, the care facility, and this isn't just life care, this is most of the care facilities in our region. If they wanted a patient transported to the hospital, the PA or doctor at that care facility would call and make arrangements with that hospital and call either a private ambulance or a a fire department based ambulance if they called 911 if it was more urgent to get that patient transferred. 
So they would basically be making a arrangement with that hospital and that hospital would determine if they were able to take the patient. Now that works good in a system that's not under pandemic-like settings, but when you have a pandemic, we had Evergreen Hospital, for example, which is the closest to life care. They were overwhelmed at the beginning because they had a slew of patients delivered and they were getting to the point where they were running out of beds or they were right on the verge of out of beds. And having a regional system where they coordinate with one person and that person's able to look at our WATRAC system where they see all the beds available in the region and distributed those patients. So not just one region or one area of that region's getting hit is super important. So the last thing we do is actually uh, the Department of Health and our governor made a rule where people go into care facilities like this need to do monitoring and they need to get screened before they go in because this is a high risk, vulnerable population at these facilities. So that plays back into my earlier comment about how we do self-screening every day. And that was that was a huge piece of that because we have now been able to not slow down our care and not slow down our ability to make access into these facilities to help these patients because we are able to screen and fit that into our daily process so we don't have to do it every time we respond to a care facility. It sounds like you have really figured out a model of incorporating all of the players in your healthcare community, the public health, the community itself, the care facilities, EMS, fire, the hospitals. I think if there's one thing that I keep hearing from EMS folks around the country, it's that they are connecting with and succeeding with connecting with people in ways that we never have seen before. So um, kudos to you for that. Let's uh, wrap up with um, with kind of advice or what wisdom you have for other leaders in positions like yours, whether they're EMS captains or medical directors or leadership. If you could give a few pieces of advice to other leaders in this country who may not yet know what they're about to encounter, what would that advice be? My advice would first be make sure your communication pathways are open with all the key players, um, whether that be your EOC, your city manager's office, uh, your, your city's elected officials, your medical director, public health, your regional partners. Make sure you have systems in place and processes in place right now. So that's not something you have to figure out when you're in the heat of trying to solve an acute problem that's happening in your community. For us regionally, that's that's been helpful because King County EMS has done a really good job over the last few decades about doing that. So a lot of those systems were there. That's not to say we've batted a thousand, um, but I think that really saved us some hardship by having those relationships established. I think probably most importantly is a, a, a topic I touched on earlier is pay attention to your responders because intent doesn't always um, translate into the right action or the most appropriate action. And I think having a leadership team that has the ability to check in with your firefighters, make sure they have a pathway to communicate with you uh, is, is super important. We actually brought on a daytime position and his sole job is right now focused on going around to our stations and checking in with our people. And he does that every day. And I think that's super important because that gives them an outlet. And it also creates good ideas and it's created things that we've been able to do better. Having a process in place where you can let your people communicate and communicate freely with you is, is very important. 
I think having pandemic um, stockpiles is something I would make sure people have. And I think most people, I would hope, realize that by now. But having something that is long-term, having the ability to do new stuff, a, a great example of that is um, that's being done regionally and, and Kirkland now has eight of these in the city and we're just getting them operational, are UVGI machines to reuse N95 masks. Because a lot of times, as we've all learned from this pandemic, PPE is a very rare commodity and we can't always get our hands on it. And our burn rate might not always be what we expect it to be. And that pandemic may last longer than we expected it to. So being uh, proactive in these systems and communication and making sure you're thinking outside the box, finding new ideas, making sure your people are taken care of and making sure they have communication pathways to you are all, all things that would be better to have done before it hits your city. Joel, is there anything else that you want to share with our audience that I haven't addressed yet? Uh, the last thing I would like to add is uh, I would like to reinforce that people and organizations communicate uh, often, communicate frequently with their partners, foster relationships with different organizations that you work with on a day-to-day basis, and make sure to engage with them right now before a crisis happens in your area, and that will pay dividends. Uh, specifically with Kirkland, I think we need to point out that our city council and city manager and their staff have done an extraordinary job. Uh, They actually gave our first responders pandemic leave and paid admin leave for any flu-like COVID symptoms, which was pretty extraordinary, um, unsolicited. I would like to thank uh, partnerships with our emergency operations center staff. Our uh, Kirkland PD has been great, I would say. Definitely reach out with your police departments. You're going to be going on calls with them and uh, you'll be working with them in regards to PPE and exposures. So get that sorted out early. Uh, King County EMS has been extraordinary. They've been working with us. Uh, Dr. Ray, I don't even know if he sleeps. He's always accessible by phone and he's there to help us through this process. And his team's been super helpful in regards to getting us information and data and support. Uh, Also, the Washington State Council of Firefighters has been super supportive. I know King County EMS, for the first month and a half, hosted a meeting for an hour every day. And until the last week or two, it's now moved to four times a week. And I think specifically Craig Susi and Kevin Rojeki have been on every one of those phone calls. So they've been engaging and creating healthy partnerships and making sure everybody's on the same page. So again... All of these things can relate to any other emergency or or hard time or trial. I think there's a quote out there that says, hard times reveal true character. And with very few exceptions in this area, most of our partners and neighbors and agencies have stepped up to the task. So I think that's uh, super important to get a hold of now instead of trying to react to it if this pandemic comes to your area. That's great. Joel, thank you again for your time today and for sharing the best practices that you've learned in Kirkland, and we wish you the best. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 